This morning, please turn with me in God's Word to 1 Peter, the third chapter, where we'll take us our reading, verses 1 to 7. 1 Peter, chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. As we consider this morning this expression, joint heirs of the grace of life. Hear now God's Word. In like manner, ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands, that even if any obey not the word, they may be without the word gained by the behavior of their wives, beholding your chaste behavior coupled with fear, whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of braiding the hair and wearing jewels of gold or of putting on apparel, but let it be the hidden man of the heart in the incorruptible apparel of a meek and quiet spirit, which is in the sight of God of great price. For after this manner aforetime, the holy women also who hoped in God adorned themselves, being in subjection to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose children ye now are, if ye do well, and are not put in fear by any terror. Ye husbands, in like manner, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor unto the woman as unto the weaker vessel, as being also joint heirs of the grace of life, to the end that your prayers be not hindered. And thus far, the reading of God's Word. Today, as you, um, many of you recognize, we are doing something a little unusual in our worship service. We're experiencing the uh, exchange of public vows of marriage between two who are part of our congregation. And so this morning I want us to look in God's Word and to consider the subject of marriage and what we might learn from the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. I'm afraid that uh, if we were to listen to our society today, we wouldn't be opening the Bible at all. We see our society has many uh, ideas about marriage, has a certain concept of marriage, a certain practice of marriage, which uh, really makes the Bible look old-fashioned, makes the Bible look out of place, a little bit anachronistic or inappropriate. On the other hand, we have to say about our society, with all of its novel views of marriage and different practices of marriage than what we find in the Bible, that there are problems all about us. Family problems, problems with children, problems between husbands and wives, sexual infidelity. We have a number of difficulties in the marriages that we see about us in our society. And I want to suggest that very likely many of those difficulties that we see all around us in our society, very likely those difficulties are tied to the unhealthy ways in which people think about the marriage relationship itself, the unhealthy ways in which they categorize or conceptualize marriage. To put it simply, the light in which they see their marriage relationship becomes a real stumbling block in the relationship itself. I believe that our experience of marriage and our response to marriage is significantly affected by the light in which we conceive it. What should we think of this marriage relationship? How should we understand it? Now, before I suggest an answer to that question, I want you to notice how important it is, this question of conceptualization, the way in which we see things. Uh, I've used this example with some of you before. You'll forgive me if I use it again, but, you know, in the, the famous movie, Boys Town, you have that line that all of us hopefully can remember, a very tender line, where the one brother is carrying another brother who is, uh, who is crippled. And uh, the father asks whether he is not heavy. And the response is, he's not heavy. 
He's my brother. You see, what's going on there is the response comes from a heart that says, the way I look upon this load that's on my back is not as a weight, not something simply to be measured in numbers or to be experienced as just another load that has to be carried uh, in life. Maybe a bag of cement might have to be carried up a, a flight of steps sometime. No, it's because I see this one who is on my back as my brother that I don't think about him as heavy. See, the way you conceptualize the situation has a lot to do with your experience of it and your response to it. He ain't heavy. He's my brother. Or you might think about um, two men who are playing on a basketball team together or a football team together, two stars of of the team who are so good in their own individual way that they both are um, very likely candidates for a Most Valuable Player Award. Maybe it's the Heisman Trophy or in the NBA it's the Most Valuable Player of the Year. And you have two players that are so good that they have that, that potential. That possibility is there that they might be named Most Valuable Player. Now how should they look upon each other, these two players? You see, they might see each other as competitors. Isn't that right? If I were Magic Johnson, I might look upon um, one of my fellow players as being a competitor with me for that prize, for that honor. Very likely, if that is the first thing that I think about, if that's the way I conceptualize that relationship, I'm not going to be playing on a successful team. Another way in which I can look upon that other person as a teammate. So how do I see this person? A competitor or a teammate? How do I see this one that I'm carrying on my back? A dead weight or a brother? makes a great deal of difference how you see what's going on in your life. How do you look upon going to work in the morning? You know, when I counsel people who just cannot stand their jobs, who cannot stand working for a certain employer and on and on, and that becomes debilitating in their own life or Christian experience, often we have to deal with conceptualization. Do you see this as going to work for this taskmaster or this rude person or this uh, terribly inept manager that you think you're more talented than? Do you see this as that terrible experience, this cross you have to bear that God has put upon you every day? Or do you rather look upon this as an opportunity to serve Jesus Christ and advance his kingdom, knowing that we don't work for men, but ultimately we work for the Lord? The way you look at it has a lot to do with your experience of it the way it subjectively comes across to you, and certainly the way that you're going to respond to it. Now, what I'm saying this morning is that's true of marriage, too. The way you look upon marriage, the way you conceptualize it, the light in which you understand the experience of marriage will have a lot to do with your response to marriage. And in our day and age, I suggest that the way marriage is conceptualized is what is creating a great deal of the difficulty in the relationships that are called marriage relationships. Just what kind of ideas of marriage do we see about us today? I'm going to mention just a few, and then I want to suggest that Peter has a better one. We see around us the idea of marriage as a negotiated merger, where you have two individuals who are kind of forming a partnership, and they negotiate with each other. This will be what I expect of you. This will be what I get out of this arrangement. This is what you will expect of me. This is what you get out of this arrangement. And, of course, if ever it should turn out that that isn't working out, If you're not living up to my expectations, then, of course, this merger is null and void. The negotiations have broken down, and that's the end of the relationship. And, of course, that is the history of so many couples. That is the end of the relationship when that negotiated merger turns out not to have been what they expected. Many people look upon marriage as a trial run. 
And I don't know whether you can exactly liken it to getting a learner's permit when you're getting your, your driver's license, but some people kind of see it that way as, well, we're going to try this out. And uh, if it doesn't work out, then, well, you know, we did our best, and that's really too bad. But just as a trial run, others look upon marriage as a pooling of resources. You know, uh, we both need a place to live, uh, we get a few tax breaks, uh, we can share the, the cooking, whatever it may be, and so we pool our resources and we come up with a little bit better living arrangement. There are people who look upon marriage, uh, I think sadly, but uh, it happens as a sexual triumph. Some, sometimes a, a, a marriage is a way of saying, see, I have conquered, here's my prize, I'm not doing so bad after all. And then, of course, very sadly, we have people who see marriage as a confirmation of previous living arrangements, a kind of, well, we've uh, lived together for six months or a year or two, and it's worked out very well, and so now we're just going to come together and let everybody know that's really what's going on. We're living together. These are different concepts of marriage, different lights in terms of which you understand the relationship. And I think they are all debilitating. They all tend to work to the breakdown of the relationship. They do not help sustain people through trial and temptation. They do not sustain you through bad times and good times. They do not create genuine weddings, the wedding of two lives. And so I would suggest we look at God's word this morning and how Peter himself conceptualizes the marriage relationship. God's word will be the focus of God's people on this question and on every other important issue in their lives. We want to know how God sees marriage, and so we're going to ask this morning how we should, as Christians, see our marriage relationship. And I want to suggest as well that the Apostle Peter is in a doubly good position to answer that question. He's in a doubly good position because, first of all, he's Christ's apostle. The Apostle Peter was commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ himself to represent him on earth after his ascension. And that means that what Peter says, Jesus says. The word apostle was used in the ancient world, by the way, in, in courtroom context for someone who is the legal representative of another. If you are my apostle, as you go into court, whatever you say, whatever motions you make, whatever agreements you make in court are as good as mine. Even if it turns out when you report back to me, I don't like what you did, it has legal binding authority. But now Jesus chose his apostles, and he said, I will give you my spirit, and I will draw all things to your remembrance, and you will bear testimony to me, so that what you say, I say. So in the first place, Peter should be heard because he's Christ's apostle. But you know, among all the apostles, Peter is the only one that we know for certain was married. Peter should be listened to especially because he's not talking from some ivory tower here, you know. Peter's not just speaking to some situation that he knows something about at a distance, but Peter has actually experienced marriage. Peter knows what it is to have a wife. He knows how difficult it is to play out those ideals that look good on paper but don't seem to, to come along so easily or readily in the practice of a relationship with a wife. We know that Peter was married because in the Gospels we read that at one time Jesus went into the house of Peter's mother-in-law and healed her. And you can't have a mother-in-law without having a wife or a husband. In Peter's case, you'd have to have a wife. That's just the way things work out. Mother-in-laws you know, require that you have a wife. If you want a mother-in-law in this world, then you're going to have to get married at some time. Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law, and Jesus ministered to her. So what I'm getting at is that we have, first of all, Christ's own words spoken through a man who had learned the ropes, a man who knew what it was to be married. 
And so here we have this married apostle. I don't know whether his wife was with him at the time he wrote this letter. I have my doubts. Peter wrote from prison in Rome, and does, it does not sound like his family is accompanying him. Maybe she has passed away. Maybe they are separated by miles because of his missionary ventures and then his imprisonment. But the fact is that Peter did know what it was to be married. And so in what light did Peter see the marriage bond? What kind of relationship is involved in marriage, according to Peter? And this is something about which husbands need especially to be knowledgeable. If we look at verse 7 in our text, for there we read, You husbands in like manner dwell with your wives according to knowledge. Modern paraphrase, don't be a dummy about marriage. You better be knowledgeable about this marriage relationship. And then Peter tells husbands uh, what sorts of things they need to know. I'm going to come back to this first one a little later. He talks about... Uh, giving honor to the woman as unto the weaker vessel. And then he says, as being also joint heirs of the grace of life. Peter says that you need to have this insight to guide your interaction with your wife. You need to see your marriage in this light. Remember that you are joint heirs of the grace of life. What a beautiful expression, joint heirs. Another way of putting it, heirs together, heirs on a par. Why heirs? Why does Peter use the concept of inheritance here? Well, because earlier in the chapter, uh, excuse me, earlier in the book, Peter has said, indeed at the very opening of this epistle, that we are blessed with an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and which fades not away, reserved in heaven for you who by the power of God are guarded through faith unto a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. Peter thinks of salvation as an inheritance from God. We are heirs of God, as Paul will say in Romans, joint heirs with Christ. Because of what Christ has done, he has inherited all the blessings of the Father. All blessedness is his, and he shares that with us. We are joint heirs with him. But here Peter talks not about joint heirs with Christ. He speaks of husband and wife as joint heirs. They are on a par. They together inherit the blessing of God. And that blessing is described by Peter as being joint heirs of the grace of life. Joint heirs, those who on a par have inherited new life, which comes to us by the grace of God. In Galatians 3, verse 28, Paul said, There can be neither Jew nor Greek, there can be neither bond nor free, there can be neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. When it comes to the blessings of salvation, you are all one in Christ. There is no differentiation. There is no first class, second class, and third class citizenship in the kingdom of God. We all inherit salvation directly from the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And as such, we are on a par with one another. So much so that no longer is this distinction between Jew and Gentile important. We need to keep that in mind when we think about you know, the relationship of the Jews to God in this day because so often people talk about the Jews as being some special position of favor, as being God's chosen people. The Word of God says quite other than that. The Word of God says that the kingdom of God has been taken from the Jews and given to a nation producing the fruit thereof. The Word of God says that in Christ, Jew and Gentile means nothing. In Christ, circumcision or lack of circumcision means nothing. And it's a bad, bad thing when theologians start making something of nothing. In Christ, that distinction does not hold. But you see, it's more than that. 
Paul has said in Galatians 3 that in Christ there's neither male nor female. In Christ there is equality of spiritual privilege. And this is really quite revolutionary. You know, we hear that today, and I think our tendency is to interpret that against the background of women's liberation or some of the popular philosophies of our day. We just take it for granted, of course, there's, there's no real uh, distinction or superiority, inferiority between male and female in Christ. But in Peter's day, that was a revolutionary idea. Because, you see, the whole history of the Old Covenant had suggested to God's people that there was a spiritual difference between male and female. Women could not approach the altar in the Old Testament. Men brought the sacrifices. In the Old Testament, the sign of the covenant was placed upon the male children in the family, not upon the female members of the family. Circumcision was in the very nature of the case, geared toward the mark upon the male. And so it would be easy for Peter's hearers to think, well, as we continue along here in God's covenantal dealings, Jews are superior to Gentiles, men are superior to women. And that right at the focus of our religious experience, right at the altar, right at the temple, right in terms of our, the badge of our covenant membership. But Peter says, no, not in Christ. In Christ, those distinctions have now been wiped out. What was foreshadowed in the Old Testament, what served a pedagogical purpose in the Old Testament, has now passed away. In Ephesians 2 and 3, Paul makes it very clear that in the one man Christ Jesus, there is not Jew or Greek, there is not Gentile or Jew, but only one. We are all on an equal footing in God's kingdom. And what Paul says about Jew and Gentile there applies to male and female as well. And this is what Peter says you must remember about marriage. When you conceptualize your marriage relationship, think of yourself as a joint heir, as someone who has inherited on a par, inherited together with your marriage partner, the grace of life. Of course, this equality of spiritual privilege was not only shocking in terms of old covenant arrangements, it was shocking in terms of the practice of Peter's day. The practice of Peter's day did not look upon women very highly. Indeed, women were not allowed to be witnesses in a court of law because their word was unreliable. And thus, you have the expression, why would you listen to the tale of an old woman? You don't bring a woman into court to testify. Jesus Christ, when he rose from the dead, sent first as witnesses to his resurrection women. And he says, you are my witnesses. You see, a way of, uh, of rebuking his culture in terms of those attitudes. Attitudes which were not biblical in the first place, but which the gospel of Jesus Christ shatters and turns around and revolutionizes. It was said among the Romans in Peter's day that a prudent man lends his wife but not his money. Women were looked upon as property of their husbands. And though it was a rather cutting and cynical remark, the idea is it would be far better to lend your wife to someone else than to give up your money. This is not Peter's conception. Peter, you see, has a revolutionary outlook. He says, look upon marriage this way. You are joint heirs of the grace of life. So we see the equality of spiritual privilege, but secondly this morning, let's look at the mutuality of self-sacrificial love. The mutuality of self-sacrificial love. What is it that we are joint heirs of? The grace of life. 
Peter's referring to the fact that those who are married, those who are Christians, enjoy life from above. In John, the third chapter, Jesus, in his interview with Nicodemus late one night, had explained that no man can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born again. And that's a message which needs to be heard this morning, which needs to be heard every Lord's Day morning, needs to be heard around the world. It's not just a message privately at night for one Jewish leader many years ago. That is the universal message of the gospel, that you cannot be right with God and you cannot enter the kingdom of God unless you are born again. And being born again, having new life from above, is something that you cannot perform, something you cannot do on your own. You did not bring yourself into this world physically. You did not negotiate about being born or to whom you would be born or under cir what circumstances you would be born or even whether you would be born. You just were born. You were passive about that. All children are. And so it is with respect to the kingdom of God, too, that we are passive. We do not bring new life to ourselves. We do not work and work and work and do so much penance and, and so many good works and then look to God and, and say, okay, God, now you owe me. Give me new life doesn't happen that way. Jesus said, you must be born through the power of his Holy Spirit. You must be born from above. And that's why Peter calls this the grace of life. Those of us who enjoy a new life in Jesus Christ do not enjoy it because we've worked for it. We do not enjoy it because we have merited it. We don't enjoy it because somehow we're better than others. Now, we need to remember that expression, which is so true of biblical teaching and so true of the Reformed faith, Reflecting the Reformed faith, we say there, but for the grace of God go I. There's only one thing that makes my life different, and that's that God has intervened. God has brought me life from above. His Holy Spirit has made me to be born again. So when Peter speaks of the life that husband and wife enjoy together as joint heirs, on a par, inheriting life from God, he calls it the grace of life. Now, if the emphasis is upon God's grace, then clearly that should lead to a gracious treatment of each other. Isn't that right? Those who have experienced the grace of God need to become conduits of that same graciousness with one another. And above all, that graciousness must be expressed in our marriage relationships. You know, one thing that I find very sad as I, as I look about me and and I'm afraid often at times in my own life as well, is that uh, we find it easier to be gracious to people outside our own homes and our own marriage relationships than to be gracious to those who live with us all the time. Here's someone that I live with, that I sleep with, that I see every day and every night. Peter says, remember that he or she is a joint recipient of the grace of life. And so what kind of gracious treatment is called for there? The sad thing is, as I've just said, is that often we'll go off to work and we'll be gracious to those we work with, we'll be gracious to those we see in the store, we'll be gracious to our friends, but at home we can be so bitchy. We can be so impatient. We can be so uncharitable. We can be so unkind and so cutting and so lacking in tenderness. And Peter says, so how do you think upon your marriage relationship? Think about it first as a matter of equality of spiritual privilege, joint heirs. But then secondly, look at the mutuality of self-sacrificial love, of the grace of life. What makes you a Christian? God's grace. And that grace, you see, must work through your life in all of your relationships. And I think within that context, the roles of husband and wife and the different duties of husband and wife are not hard to swallow. In our day and age, we have a lot of people, you see, that are very upset with the teaching of the Bible about how a wife should be subordinate to her husband. 
We have a lot of difficulty with that, a hard time swallowing that. But I want to suggest that if wives were married to husbands who did what Peter said they should do, it wouldn't be tough to swallow at all. If you had a husband who lived with you according to knowledge, seeing you as the weaker vessel and conceiving of you as a joint heir of the grace of life, if graciousness was expressed in his relationship with you, you would find it very easy to love him, to be submissive to him, to live for him. We see in the Old Testament that women were created for the sake of being helpmeets for their men, for their husbands. It is true that the teaching of the Bible says that a woman's place is to be a helper to her husband. And so we find in Ephesians, the fifth chapter, that women are to be submissive to their husbands in all things, even as the church is to be submissive to Jesus Christ. But notice what we find there in Ephesians, the fifth chapter. Not some kind of relationship where you have a Lord who comes in with a whip in hand and says, okay, I want this mousy wife who's just going to snap into place when I tell her to. When I say jump, she says how high. Is that the way Jesus lords it over the church? Is that his relationship to the church? How did Jesus become Lord of the church? Do we remember? He became Lord of the church by going to the cross for the church. He was first the Savior of the body. And so husbands must be willing to die for their wives. And I don't think there's a woman here this morning who wouldn't in her heart of hearts say, even if you wouldn't say outwardly, that if you had a man who would die for you, you'd be willing to live for him. See, that's Paul's outlook. There's this mutuality of self-sacrificial love, and Peter reflects that when he speaks of our being on a par with one another as recipients of the grace of life. And in that context, what does Peter say to husbands and wives? He says to the wife, you really shouldn't be so concerned about your outward adorning. You notice he says here, whose adorning let it not be the outward adorning of braiding the hair and wearing jewels of gold and putting on apparel. Please don't read that literally. It's a sad thing in the history of the church. We've had some groups who don't believe in braiding of the hair or wearing jewels of gold because Peter says, don't let it be that way. And so they will have, uh, in some groups, even buttons you know, are, are out of the question. You have to have hooks and eyes on your clothes and, and nothing flashy to wear. That isn't what Peter is saying here. And you know that isn't what Peter is saying because those groups that do this kind of thing with that text of Scripture will say about the braiding of the hair and the outward you know, gold jewelry, none of that. But you notice they don't take literally or the wearing of clothes. You see, if we followed this out literally, that would mean we all should be nudist, I guess. That isn't what Peter is saying. It should be obvious from that counter-illustration that what Peter is talking about is the attitude toward our outward appearance. And he says to women, who I guess he thinks tend to be more interested in that, that doesn't have to be a put-down, ladies. I think it's probably to your credit that you're more interested in your outward looks than men usually are. I'm, I'm rather glad you are. But Peter says, don't let that be the focus of your life. The adorning that should concern you is the inward adorning, the hidden person of the heart, the incorruptible apparel of a meek and quiet spirit, which in the sight of God is of great price. And so a wife should have a meek and a quiet spirit, and then he goes on to say, that is willing to call her husband Lord. And so we swallow hard. That's tough, isn't it? He speaks of Sarah and her relationship with Abraham, and Sarah was willing to call Abraham Lord, boss, master. Can you do that, Christian ladies, this morning? Do you have the grace of life so powerfully surging through you that in your marriage relationship you can say Lord? Can you show a meek and a quiet spirit? 
That's hard to attain in an age that teaches women to be boisterous and pushy and to get their own way. But you see, in no Christian relationship is that the focus. Getting your own way is not what's important. Getting God's way is. Getting God's way usually calls for two losers instead of one winner and one loser. I lose to my wife and she loses to me and together we become winners. And so women need to seek a meek spirit, a quiet spirit. Don't nag your husbands. If God has given your husband a job to do that earns money for your family, don't try to tell him how to do his job unless he asks for help. And then you should be a helper. If the husband decides that the children should be disciplined in a certain way, don't get in the way of the husband exercising that authority that God has given him. Be a helper. If the husband decides that your spiritual benefit would call for you to attend this church or the other, don't try to fight your husband on that. Learn to have a meek and a quiet spirit. Don't try to tell your husband where you go on vacation all the time. Don't try to determine what the TV programming is going to be this evening. Learn to be a giver rather than a controller in that relationship. You say, but wait a minute, wait a minute. You've given all these illustrations. If I do all those things, I'll be walked on. I'll become a doormat. What's going to happen to me? I would suggest to you that husbands need to learn also what Peter says in chapter 3, verse 7. Husbands, in like manner, dwell with your wives knowledgeably, giving honor unto the woman as unto the weaker vessel. Now, the weaker vessel here is not at all a criticism of women. It's a description of the woman's place in this relationship. You see, if I were to set before you this morning on this pulpit a beautiful, expensive china vase, I would say this is a weaker vessel than the garbage cans that are outside behind the kitchen door. Now, with respect to those garbage cans, you can kick them, you can roll them, you can dump them over, and they're going to be good garbage cans back next week for more abuse. <laughs> but if you try doing that with this glass vase, it's all over. So, husbands, how do you treat your wives? Like garbage cans or like beautiful, expensive vases? You see what Peter's saying? It's not a put-down of the woman. He's saying, husbands, be gentle, be respectful, show them honor, give place to them, love them. And um, I really wish that I could stand up and say, and I'm a model of that as your pastor. Just be husbands like I am. And, and we'd all laugh because we know better, don't we? I'm not. And I struggle with that. I work with that. And husbands, I want you to work with me on being better husbands to our wives. But I do know there was one incidence where maybe I, I pulled it off right. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, interning in a church one summer while I was in seminary. And at that time, I had a mustache. It was back in the 60s, and people you know, did that sort of thing. It's really kind of out of vogue now. But anyway, I had this mustache, and I went to this little church in Colorado. And I remember preaching one Sunday evening, and one of the elderly ladies of the congregation came out, came out, and she shook my hand. She thanked me for the sermon. She said, why don't you get rid of that mustache? And she was one of the pillars of the church and a very godly woman. She could get away with that kind of thing. She just looked at me and said, why don't you get rid of that mustache? And I said, well, because my wife likes it so much. And her immediate retort was, Aren't you the head of your house? And I don't know where it came from. I don't believe in continuing revelation, so I don't think God sent this message into my head. But somehow, beyond my foolishness, the wise response came out. Immediately I said, yes, but I, I'm the head with love. And so if my wife likes the mustache and it's not my preference, then I keep the mustache. And she didn't know what to say. And I don't think you really can answer that. Husbands, we need to rule our families in the same way with that kind of loving, gentle tenderness
that says, if this is what my wife needs, if this is what makes her happy, that's what I want to do. And so you see how it works? The husband gives in to the wife, the wife gives in to the husband, and it almost becomes a comedy of who can outdo the other in giving in to one another. And as we give in to one another, we find out that we both win in this relationship. We both, you see, learn what it is to love one another and to enjoy a happy marriage. And what will be the result as we end this morning? Notice that Peter, after he gives these instructions to husbands and wives through the first seven verses, says in verse 8, Finally then, all of you be like-minded, compassionate, loving as brothers, tender-hearted, humble-minded, not rendering evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but contrawise blessing. For hereunto were ye called that you should inherit a blessing. You know what will happen if we learn to love each other in the way this passage talks about? We're going to be humble-minded people tender-hearted people, compassionate people, and we will not return evil for evil or reviling for reviling. There's the breakdown of our marriages today right there. I do you wrong because you know what? You did me wrong. You weren't nice to me, so I'm not nice to you. You were grouchy with me, so I'll be grouchy with you. You give me the cold shoulder, I'll give you the cold shoulder. Kind of reminds me of the, uh, the line in this contemporary movie, The Untouchables. You know, this is the way Al Capone and those who, the Untouchables, were trying to get each other. And, and the line goes something like this He sends one of your men to the hospital, you send one of his men to the morgue. You know, and that really is the way it was between the Untouchables and Capone. It was always who can outdo the other guy, evil for evil, reviling for reviling. But you see, it's one thing to make a, a movie out of that. It's another thing to try to make a life out of it. And you try to make a life out of that, you're not going to have a good marriage. And so Peter says, If you will learn, you husbands, to see your wives as delicate vases, and wives, if you'll call your husband Lord, then you're going to have a like-minded, compassionate, tender-hearted, humble-minded relationship where evil's not returned for evil, or reviling for reviling. And in that situation, we will inherit a blessing. Let's pray. Lord, we pray for our marriages this morning because we know that as sinners, we can be so hard to live with. As sinners, we so easily forget the health-giving, valuable principles of your word. And we know that so often in our marriage relationships, we don't see something like the relationship of Christ in the church to one another. We see evil being returned for evil and reviling for reviling. And so we pray for our marriages. We pray that you would forgive us for our waywardness and our selfishness and our lack of love. We pray that you would strengthen our marriages, that you would put more of Christ in us and remind us of the grace of life that we enjoy. And above all, this morning, we ask, Father, you'd help us to see marriage in the proper light, not in the light of what the world teaches all around us, not in the false conceptualizations that sinners have and that lead to a destructive marriage relationship. But, Father, we pray you would help us to see our marriages in light of what Peter himself teaches for you when he says we are joint heirs of the grace of life. Do bless our marriages. Help us to inherit that blessing you intend for us, that we might bring glory to you and find satisfaction in your word. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.